Welcome into a Sunday night heartbreak hotel edition of the Locked On Nets podcast. We talk a backbreaker of a loss to the New Orleans Pelicans, and then a game against the Warriors that the Nets probably shouldn't have won, but theoretically could. We'll get into that next on the Locked On Nets podcast. You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Nets, your daily Brooklyn Nets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Nets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gavin Shaw, and uh, my co-host is Josh Bass. We're, we're not doing the elaborate intro today. There was uh, too much heartbreak. Uh, but right before we get into it, I do want to say uh, thank you, everyone, who's been listening this month. We are actually, I, I don't want to go too inside baseball, but we're about 20% better than we've ever been in any other month, and we still have a couple days left and a few podcasts left. So I just wanted to take this opportunity right at the top of the podcast to thank everyone for listening. If you recommended it to a friend, if you download it frequently, if you listen to every episode, even if it's only a couple minutes of each episode and you're only finding the points you want in the episode to listen to, whatever capacity you do it in, we really genuinely appreciate it. And it really encourages us to do more of these. I think we did more podcasts this month than we've done in any other month. Uh, Josh, I know I'm just springing this on you, but if you want to say anything on that or if you want to just get talking about the games, we can we can do that as well. Uh, no, I just wanted to reiterate what you said. Thank you all for listening. Uh, we see, I think the next year is going to be really exciting, especially as the Nets get a lot better. And um, like this team, we just want to continue developing. And, and again, these last two games, the Nets really did show some promise by really any measure imaginable. They should have beaten the New Orleans Pelicans. They were up by... Quite a bit in the first half, New Orleans came back, and then the Nets had just every single opportunity to close this game. They were up by seven with under two minutes left. Nets-Warriors, a little bit of a different story, a 120-114 loss for Brooklyn. They were down by, I believe, 15 with about five minutes left in this game, and they went on this torrid run. Uh, I think you summed it up pretty well. You can make the argument the only thing the Nets did really well in that game was just shoot absurdly well from three-point range, and sometimes that's all you need. Against the Warriors, you need a little bit more. But all in all, a very good effort for the Nets against um, one of the greatest teams, if not the greatest team ever assembled in basketball history. So, Josh, we'll, we'll start there. I'm, I'm assuming you want to talk uh, Pelicans first because I, I think for both of us that was the more visceral loss and the one that will sting a little bit longer. Yeah, I mean, that was that was really tough because I, was, I couldn't watch the game until today. I was following along. Uh, on Friday night when I was out, and uh, seven-point lead with a minute left. You have to close that. Uh, obviously, we can get into the Ed Davis technical foul, which I think was completely ridiculous, and I'm sure you agree with that. But even still, the Nets would have been down one um, after Drew Holiday hit that shot. And just I think the theme of the season so far has been so many stupid turnovers, and we see one there with D'Lo, about seven seconds left. He could have either held on to it or just made an accurate pass to Levert, and if they, those guys had gotten on the same page, but he throws it away, uh, and Drew comes down and hits that jumper, and just heartbreak city. Yeah, no, it was it was so tough, and there were just so many different areas, Like, and I, and I think they, they broke it down pretty well. At the beginning of the Warriors game, Dudley had that intentional foul, and I actually, I didn't really mind that. They described that as, I guess, part of the problem, but 
I thought that was actually a pretty intelligent play. He said he didn't want to give the Pelicans a chance to hit a three. Obviously, ideally, you run out the clock as much as you possibly can in that situation before fouling, or you force the Pelicans to run as much yeah, clock as possible. Yeah, I think he was a little overzealous. He just yeah. did it. There's no point in that. Right, but simultaneously, once you get under 24, theoretically, then you just turn into a free throw contest and you get the ball to the right guys and you make your free throws, you're going to win the game. And again, that's all easier said than done, especially in a road arena. But I, I thought he had a good idea. And the fact of the matter is, the, where the Nets really lost that game, is, especially at the end, is they, they repeatedly failed to take advantage of the Pelicans trapping the ball. And the Nets would make really good passes out of it. And it was I was repeatedly D'Angelo Russell. I think one time it was Spencer Dinwiddie. But they kept doubling right around midcourt. And this was all in the last two minutes, knowing they had to do something drastic to get back into the game. And Russell would make a smart pass. And he, one time he got it to Jared Allen. Um, I, I think twice he might have got it to Jared Allen. And the first time Jared Allen had this lane to the rim. And if he just takes two dribbles, he's a dunk mm-hmm. right at the basket. He pauses and then uh, uh, commits an offensive foul on Nikola Mirotic trying to hook his arm around him because he's not going to blow by him, but he had the lane if he didn't hesitate. And then the time after, I can't quite remember who missed the pass. It might have been Karis LeVert, but he was able to draw a double team up top, and they literally just left Allen wide, wide open underneath the basket. And and then he he swung it to Dinwiddie instead. By the time Dinwiddie got it to Allen, Anthony Davis was back, and and he just did manage to force him to miss the shot. And the Nets had all these good looks at the end. Three or four of them just did rattle out. It was this like insane confluence of circumstances, and it really is when you look at like win probability models, when you're up by seven with two minutes left, it's almost impossible to lose an NBA game, and that's why so much had to go wrong for Brooklyn, and it did. Yeah, I, I think that um, obviously some of the passes weren't always on time, and Allen was super hesitant, as you mentioned. I, I've seen that trend, I think, for most of the games. It seems like he's so scared of getting blocked or maybe missing an easy shot that he'll be right by the rim, and obviously there was that... Who was was it the game against? Um, I guess I guess I guess it might have been the um, second loss of the season. I'm blanking on who it was when he kicked it out to a wide open Dinwiddie for a corner three, and you were saying that he should have just taken it back up. Yeah, that was against the Knicks, and it was funny because yeah, Zach Lowe was, mentioned Zach Lowe mentioned that in his podcast last week, and I, I gave a little fist pump. I was, I was glad he noticed that, but yeah, no, that was insane. As good or bad? As bad. He was just saying yeah. like. He was saying in general, like he noticed a trend across the league, and he also mentioned our guy Alex Len as doing this of, of certain bigs, like being just so conditioned to always try and look for a three pointer that they're just passing up, dunking on guys a foot shorter than them. Yeah, how, I feel like Allen should be averaging 15 points a game just because there's so much space and he's getting a ton of opportunities. And he's just been that first half against Detroit, he was amazing. And since then, he's been a bit too tentative on the offensive end for my liking. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And it's, I think particularly like getting those big minutes with D'Angelo Russell and Russell gets him like six free points off of just really strong pick and roll play every single game. He should be doing that. And and the fact of the matter is when Allen is aggressive, he's really, really good. And I think it's possible that he's thrown a little bit by the fact that his teammates have gotten better. And there's a, if any, weirdly enough, even though he's probably a better player, there's seemingly a little bit less responsibility on him uh, this season. But he, he has to continue to be aggressive because he was a, he showed in the second half of last season, and presumably he's only gotten better at this, that he can succeed in one-on-one situations, whether it's posting up or attacking a guy off the dribble when he catches it on the roll. And that's not to say he should become like an offensive focal point for the Nets because I think at least for the next couple of years he's going to be a secondary player until he develops more of a versatile offensive game. But there are certainly avenues for him to attack, and he's not necessarily taking advantage of all of them. Yeah, I love that, I love that idea that he's – so confused that the Nets players are better than they 
than they were last year. Like, oh, yeah. you guys are still supposed to suck. What is this? <laughs> what are we doing? Are we still trying to create variants? Yeah, I don't know. I think there, I think there is a little, there is a little bit of that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, no, that was that was that was so tough. It was really like just watching that, and then like especially like the D'Lo to Levert at the end because before D'Lo missed Levert, like I was, I loved that Nets possession because they were just playing keep away, and you could tell like the Pelicans were gonna blow it, like because they just weren't fouling quickly enough. Mm-hmm. They were kept. They kept trying to go for that steal, and there was seven seconds left. And Levert had caught it there. There was no one all that close to him, so they probably foul him around four seconds left. And who knows, maybe Levert goes only one of two from the line, and Drew Holiday comes down, hits a three, or Holiday hits a jumper to tie it, and they lose an OT. There was still a lot of avenues for them to lose that game, but I, I just thought the passing by everyone, especially like Dinwiddie, had that nice little like skip pass to Russell right before Russell turned it over. Like that was just such a fun possession. Like it was almost like a schoolyard game where it's like, all right, just keep throwing it until they tire out and they have to hit you. And then Russell just rushed it by half a second. And I remember I was talking to a friend of the pod, Matt Drexler, in a car going back from a high school soccer broadcast, and he was telling me he saw the clip on Twitter uh, Friday night. He was like, I don't know, it might have been both of their fault. I put that one squarely on Russell, who we'll get, and we'll get to this. He had a great, great game, so no shots at him. But I, I just thought he had to take an extra second before making that pass. I don't know. I think it's on both of them. And there's been so many turnovers this year where it's specifically D'Lo and Lavert just not on the same page, either bumping into each other, getting um, to the same spots on the court that both like. So they need to figure it out because right now there's a ton of time. We saw uh, it might have been in the Pistons game where there was a, a handoff that got went wrong and it went out of, straight out of bounds. So they need to really work it out. I mean, maybe it's just because they're both ball-dominant players and they're used to kind of being the guy whenever they're on the court. So now they now that especially Levert's emerged, D'Lo's trying to figure out how it makes sense to play with Levert in the most efficient way possible. So uh, I, I can't really blame any one player for that turnover against the Pelicans. And yeah, as you mentioned, um, that type of play is usually something that the Nets would be on the receiving end of, where um, they're down by one, it's going for a steal the whole way, and it ends up that the game just, and they forget to foul. Yeah, and it again, there was I, I think, and we'll, I'm sure, talk about this in the remaining two segments of this podcast, but the Nets are doing so many things better than they did last year. And they're still losing on these thin margins. And it, it kind of it feels exactly the same as last year to a degree. And I'm sure I, I think, and, and you can you can respond to this, but I, I think you'd largely agree with that sentiment. But I, I just think this is something that against teams that aren't quite as good as the Pelicans and the Warriors, and obviously they also lost a close game to the Pistons. So maybe this isn't entirely true, but I think they're doing enough stuff right that they could change these trends in close games, and maybe this isn't a season-long issue, and it's just something that's coming to the forefront against two of the best teams in the NBA. All right, uh, with that, we'll take a quick break. Josh, I'll give you a chance to respond to that on the other end, and we'll get a little bit more into the specifics of Nets-Pelicans before finishing up this podcast talking Nets-Warriors. That next on Locked on Nets. Thanks for sticking with us on Locked on Nets, Josh. We were about to get into it. Uh, the Nets are still, obviously, they're, they're having issues in these close games. I mean, between the Pistons, Pelicans, and and now the Warriors, that's, that's three that they lost in the closing, that were really up for grabs in the closing minute. And obviously the Warriors, they were down by like seven with like 70 seconds left, but again, one Joe Harris shot away from really turning that into a game. Do, do you th- buy that this is a lot essentially what we saw last season or do you think this Nets team is different and against different teams it could turn out differently yeah I think they're better um they're still gonna have problems closing because they don't have that one unquestioned guy which can either 
um, get to the bucket every time or draw fouls. And uh, they just still need that leader in terms of, I mean, the Warriors, how many offensive rebounds did they have in the fourth quarter alone? It's ridiculous. Um, but they did pull out that close game against the Knicks. So I think it's it's growing pains, but they're obviously a lot more competitive and they're going to win more games this season. Um, I think what, what it's going to come down to is, listen, you played two uh, Western Conference teams, Pelicans, solid playoff team, Warriors, best team of all time. And both those games were very close and came down to the wire. Now, tomorrow, playing a Knicks team that is just garbage, they have to come out and win that game. Because if they lose that, then it's saying, hey, we're not going to be anywhere close to the eight seed this year because we can't even beat the teams that we should. What, what, what are you saying about my Knicks? Why, why, why do you have to say garbage? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? We, we, we played with the Warriors for three quarters. We're, we're good. A, a, a Moutier-level uh, team. Mitchell Robinson. All right, no, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, no, they, and, they, and they should be garbage, to be fair. As many two-point losses as the Knicks can have this season, I will approve of. Just, just keep doing it, Knicks. You guys, you guys have it. All right. Uh, when are you going to officially become a Nets fan? Because I feel like no, it's, it's never. Just, it's, never it's we never, can't. We can't keep going with this. Not gonna, no, I'm a, I'm a journalist, Josh. You're you're the, you're the fan to my journalist. I'm objective. I admit I enjoy watching well, no, the Nets. You're, you're partial to the Knicks, so you're not objective. I mean, only when they play the. It's not really an issue because they don't play the Nets every game. You know what? You want to hear something really funny? And I'm I'm fine talking about this on air. Our most listened to podcasts like ever were the ones we did with James Marceda and Locked on Knicks. And like even the one that was only about the Knicks, that one got like 400 listeners. So I think there are a lot of closeted Knicks fans listening to this podcast. And hey, there's no judgment. There's no judgment. I'm with you. I just want to put, throw that out there. Oh, I hate you so much. Isn't that funny? That, that's incredible. That's such a win no. for me, I would say. Well, I don't know. I know at least I have such an inferiority complex to the Knicks. Uh, I'm sure many Nets fans do as well. But shout out to, to – uh, our boy injury report, James Marceda. He does a good job. Yeah, he's great. All right. Uh, we owe this much to him. We destroyed D'Angelo Russell every time he has a bad game. He was very, very good over these two. And, you know, we don't even have to separate it. Let's, let's talk about uh, both these games simultaneously. Uh, against the Pelicans, D'Angelo Russell, 24 points, 9 of 16 from the field, 6 of 9 from three-point range, also five rebounds, four steals, Five turnovers, not so good, but if he's shooting like that, I think we'll both deal with it. Then against the Warriors, in 29 minutes, had 25 points, 9 of 14 from the field, 5 of 8 from 3, 6 rebounds, 6 assists, only got only getting slightly outplayed by Steph Curry, and that is an incredible accomplishment. So a uh, shout-out to D'Angelo Russell. He was shooting the lights out the last two games. Again, he just takes such tough shots. I think the concern for both of us is – we, we don't know how sustainable this is, but uh, he, he was excellent. Yeah, I mean, he was he was great. And my big thing with him is that um, so far in his Nets career, and I think overall in his career, is that he's a very consistent playmaker, a poor defender, and his shots doesn't fall down all the time. And I mean, looking at his two games against Golden State New Orleans, he combined for 10 assists and 10, tur- and 10 turnovers, which sucks. But his shot was falling. I mean, he was hitting his tough mid-rangers especially in that New Orleans game. The three-point shot was falling in both of those games. I mean, uh, 11 for 17 combined on threes, that's awesome. You know, if he can become a 40 to 42% three-point shooter, that will open up his entire game. The thing is, these two games were awesome. I'm just not sure if that's going to be able to carry over for um, the rest of the season or if that's just a blip on the radar. Right, and uh, second shout-out of the pod for him, Matt Drexler spent a lot of time with him the last few days. 
we were having that debate that I know you and I are very strongly on one side of it, but I imagine some people listening are on the Matt Drexler side. So it was like Karis or D'Lo, Nets best player. And I was saying like any argument for D'Lo is just ridiculous. Like they're not comparable defensively. I would argue at this point, Karis is pretty obviously the better offensive player. And I think that'll prove out over the course of a full season. But the whole thing with D'Lo is, again, with that lack of explosiveness, like, and and I think I said this a lot last year, and I can't remember if I mentioned it this preseason or not, but the path to him living up to the hype and becoming someone you want to give a lot of money to this offseason is him turning into a very, very good three-point shooter. And his first three seasons in the NBA, he was a below average to bad three-point shooter. He wasn't anywhere close to that mark. But in, And I would say even 37% would be a success. But if you want to talk about him as a near all-star level guy, you got to hit 39 or 40% of the threes because you see what kind of effect that has for Steph Curry's game. And obviously Curry is better than D'Lo in a million different ways. He's naturally quicker. He's a better athlete, all of that. But when you have that threat from three-point range and you start pulling guys out, that's when someone like D'Lo with all the savviness he has in his ball handling, that's when you can start beating guys off the dribble. And that's when all these possessions that are just really struggles for him and it just seems like he's like slugging through mud, they could start turning into open layups if he can turn into that type of three-point shooter. And, and we've seen it happen in the NBA. A guy like Kemba Walker came into the league shooting the three ball a lot like D'Lo does, and now he's one of the better three-point shooters in the league. So it's certainly possible, but I I wonder how much of that we'll see this season. Yeah, and, it, and a credit to Russell is that he is a better three-point shooter um, his first couple seasons in the league than Kemba Walker was when he came in. But uh, I think that Russell, he really showed a lot as a catch-and-shoot guy. So maybe it's thinking he could be better off the ball because he still has never really shown a consistent ability to hit threes off the dribble. But uh, I thought he looked pretty comfortable hitting them off the catch um, for most of the shots he made in the last two games. Um, but have we ever seen a point – like? I think every time we talk about it, it really just reminds me how slow he is. And I don't remember ever seeing a point guard that's that um, lacking quickness in, in that regard. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, like he really guys like Andre Miller maybe, can't yeah. beat his man at all. Yeah. Anyone in the last 10 years, though? Raymond Felton? I feel like even Felton on the Knicks days could like get downhill in a hurry up. Yeah, he's like kind of sneaky explosive for mm-hmm. a fat yeah. guy playing point guard in the NBA. Yeah, I don't know. He just... Yeah, he, I mean, you're right to a degree. He he doesn't have that explosive speed. Like Even someone like James Harden, who obviously does it at an infinitely higher level than D'Lo does, like, he, he, he has that same change of pace and the same type of game, but he's just much, much faster. So that is an interesting discussion. But again, this wasn't to crap on D'Lo because I thought he was he was a big part of the reason why the Nets were in these two games and when their offense stalled out at times, he, he was really spectacular. And another guy who hit... Some really tough threes in both these games with Spencer Dinwiddie. I know he it was part of his game last year, but he's really kind of mastered that James Harden uh, sidestep uh, three-pointer. And he, he used it twice to hit buzzer beaters in the third quarter of each of these two games. And I just thought the degree of difficulty on his shot making, and I don't know, it might even be a bad thing long-term because it encourages him to take these shots that are objectively bad. But I was just really, really impressed with some of the types of shots Dinwiddie was hitting, and I thought in particular in the third quarter against the Warriors, where I think he had three threes, the Nets were ready to not not give up, but they were ready to give away that game. Like the Warriors, like were hitting shots, it seemed like they could extend it to twenty or twenty-five, and instead Dinwiddie just hits these ridiculous threes back to back to back, and the Nets stay right in it, and it keeps them close enough to at least have a chance in the fourth. Yeah, I thought Spencer. I mean, he hit four of seven on three pointers. 
three of those were right at the end of the third quarter, start of the fourth, some really difficult looks, but I think he's played pretty poorly to start the season. I mean, three-point shooting's been great, but his passing's been terrible. Just some wild attempts he's throwing out there, like pretty sloppy passes for the most part. And the guy's only shot four free throws in the last five games. And this is someone who made his living attacking the basket last year, averaged three and a half free throw attempts last year um, per game, was really great beating his man, forcing contact. And obviously he's someone that we know wants to get a lot more calls than he has been. Uh, And I'm shocked to see his free throw attempts be so low to start the season. Maybe it's Part of it's adapting to a new role where there's more ball handlers at play, and he's not the lead guy. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I think a big part of it is him being off the ball a little bit more, and he was a guy last year who really liked to take his time, survey a defense, pound, 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 and that's just not really the emphasis for this Nets team this year. They've really, when their offense has been at their best, it's because they've been pinging the ball around the perimeter, and that's not even necessarily started as much by uh, the point guard winning off the dribble, which last year I thought was really the impetus. For a lot of their ball movement, while this year it's happening more on off-ball action, or at least that's my instinct. I haven't really looked into the synergy data to back that up, but that's that's kind of what I'm seeing. And it's kind of surprising because I thought the first two games of the season, especially against the Knicks, Dinwiddie was really genuinely excellent at attacking off the dribble and attacking in transition. And I thought he looked stronger and more explosive than he did at any point um, last season. And I think he is settling a little bit. And to his credit, like again, the last two games, he made a lot of really challenging three balls. And I think over the last two, he was a combined um, seven of 12 from three point range, which again is just ridiculous. But much like with Russell, like you're not going to shoot over 50% from three over any significant sample size when you're like a career 34, 35% three point shooter. So I'd, I'd like to see him uh, get back to the rim. All right, to round out this segment, uh, you know what? Actually, we're already over 21 minutes. So let's uh, take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about the remaining Nets. Maybe we'll get a little bit into the Warriors game. And we'll wrap this one up for you on the Locked on Nets podcast. All right, little bit of an explanation is in order. I was having a lot of technical issues on my end, and Josh needs to get to sleep because he has to wake up in like six hours for work. So I'm finishing this one up solo. Uh, Me and Josh actually tried recording this third segment a few times. We got about halfway through it, so I'll run through some of the points we both made uh, very briefly. Uh, Shabazz Napier, I was really into his performance against the Pelicans. I love what he is bringing to the table. He is absolutely a spark plug. He's just so, so skilled. He might be the best shooter out of any of the guards on this team, at least on a consistent basis. I'm, I'm interested to see if that proves itself out over the course of the season. I know he didn't shoot as well against the Warriors, but I just feel like he's so savvy and he is an absolutely perfect fit for this team. So big shout out to Sean Marks. I think he got exactly the right guy in Napier. Alan Crabb, my uh, my big take on him and one that Josh tentatively agreed with is that uh, when both Damari Carroll and Rodion's Kurutz are healthy, I, I don't necessarily see a reason for him to be a part of this rotation. His only contribution this season, and frankly, for most of last season, was when he got really hot from three-point range, and that has been few and far between this season. We saw it against the Warriors for about a quarter and a half, and other than that, it's pretty much been absent. Uh, we, me and Josh were debating this, and I, I set the over-under at five two-pointers he's made this season. The actual number is two. He's made two two-pointers this season. I think he's played in four games now. 
That is wild stuff for a guy playing over 20 minutes a game, and it's frankly inexplicable for someone who's six foot seven and should theoretically be able to set up a defense and leverage his three-point shooting into easy runs to the rim. But uh, what I see from him is just he's consistently tentative, and there's clearly a link between his lack of confidence and that translating into lack of decisiveness on the court. And it's honestly, it's it's reminiscent of a lot of what you see playing pickup where guys will catch the ball, and if someone's even close to them, they, they won't necessarily fire in a pickup that makes a lot of sense. But when you're one of the best shooters in the world, or at least you're paid like you're one of the best shooters in the world. Sorry, I'm getting some ESPN fantasy updates. Uh, when you're paid like you're one of the best shooters in the world, you and you're six foot seven, you got to be able to hit threes with guys in your face because that's just part of the job description. And if you're not going to be able to do that, you have to leverage your three-point shooting ability by pump faking and taking decisive dribbles to the basket. We see Joe Harris do that time and time again. And the only, and he's not like a far better athlete than Crab. I don't know. Maybe he's a little bit quicker and a little bit stronger. But I, I frankly don't think there's a massive difference between those two guys. It's all tied up in the fact that Harris doesn't think he gives a little fake and then he just goes right to the rim. Crab will dribble, pause, dribble, and he ends up with a lot of contested twos. And even if you're the best shooter in the world – all right, well, if you're Kevin Durant, you're going to make a lot of those. But if you're not Kevin Durant, you're going to miss most of those. And that's what we've seen time and time again from Alan Crabb this season. And because of that, and, and unless he can change that or just turn into like the greatest three-point shooter ever, I, I don't see a reason for him to be part of this rotation. I honestly think Rodion's Karutz at 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, I probably should have looked it up. Um, I, I think he's just a way more decisive, instinctual player who does a variety of things on both ends of the floor a little bit better than Crabb does, who will give I'll give a little bit of credit to. He was really good rebounding the ball against the Warriors, but there are just so many different issues with how Alan Crabb is playing right now. I have really lost a lot of faith in him. Um, at some point, we're going to have to spend a lot more time on Ed Davis because he just continues to be very, very consistent. I know Josh wanted to quickly mention the technical foul he had against the Pelicans. I thought it was stupid. I mean, I think you should get a technical foul for even approaching another team's timeout, and that was Clearly, his push was in retaliation to that happening. Regardless, it ultimately didn't change the outcome of the game unless maybe you could argue Kenny Atkinson was drawing up a play from three instead of two to try and win the game, and that's why Harris's pass got deflected. I'll say pretty confidently that didn't change the final score of the game, even though it was really dumb and a bad call. Hollis Jefferson, I continue to like the energy he's bringing to the table. He has yet to have a game where he shoots the ball well from the field, and he's been quite atrocious shooting the ball, so hopefully as he continues to get into rhythm, and again, it's a little unfair, he hasn't had much chance to practice or get his feet under him, he's just playing game after game after game, so maybe it'll be tough sledding for a little bit, but I think eventually he will figure it out, and he'll continue to be a key part of this team. The Nets played him in, in some fun lineups, they, they had one with D'Lo, Levert, Hollis Jefferson, Jared Allen, which on paper is getting maybe your five best players on the floor, I think you can make an argument between Joe Harris and Rondé Hollis Jefferson. But I, I like it just from an idea perspective. Like, let's just put as much talent, athleticism, and ball handling as we possibly can out there. I don't know if it worked very well because, again, with the lack of shooting, just because it's your five best players, I don't know if that's actually your best lineup. But I like the idea, and I, I like to continue to see Kenny Atkinson mix it up and put Hollis Jefferson in different spots. All right, uh, that is it for this edition of the Locked on Nets podcast. Uh, we're going to be back, I hope, tomorrow. I, I think we'll be back tomorrow with uh, Josh maybe doing one with Marcus. I know I will not be on the podcast tomorrow. 
Uh, regardless, we will have some more for you this week. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you had a great weekend. I hope you have a great week.